Welcome to episode 11 of Bookmarked. In today's episode, I'm going to explore the book Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win. Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willick and Leif Babin is a compelling and thoughtful provoking book that challenges readers on how to embrace responsibility and accountability in all aspects of their lives. Drawing from his experience or their experiences as Navy SEAL officers, Willink emphasizes the importance of taking ownership of one's actions, decisions, and the outcomes of the results from them. Through their own military anecdotes and insightful leadership principles, this book highlights the transformative power of extreme ownership, demonstrating how it can empower individuals to overcome obstacles, improve relationships, and achieve success. As I go through each chapter in the book, I'm going to tell a story that Jocko and Leif describe in each chapter, as I think it really highlights the the key principle the chapter outlines. So I think this might be potentially a longer episode, but as always, there'll be timestamps in the description, so feel free to skip around. And with that, let's get started. Chapter 1. Extreme Ownership To set the scene, a battle is unfolding in the city of Ramadi. Smoke from burning tires, dust from U.S. tanks, and powdered concrete from building walls shattered and scattered by gunfire filled in the air. A U.S. tank is at the close range to a building, and a red smoke signal is seen, which means help. For the situation, this is the first major operation in Ramadi, and it's absolutely chaotic. There are four teams of U.S. SEALs and that are operating in different parts of the city. There are about 300 U.S. and Iraqi troops fighting in the Malab district against enemy insurgents called the Mujahideen, also typically referred to in the book as the Muj. The operation has started early in the morning, and now everyone is engaged in fighting. Reports of U.S. and Iraqi troops wounded or killed, and enemy fighters killed are coming in at rapid pace. A team of U.S. Marine Corps is cooperating with aircraft to drop bombs on enemy positions. Only a few hours into the operation, two of the SEAL sniper teams have come under a huge attack. Enemy fighters launch an intense attack with heavy guns, rockets, and automatic rifles at them. One of the SEAL sniper teams is pinned down uh, by enemy fire, and called for a quick reaction force, a QRF, and Abram tanks for help. This is where the misunderstanding comes in. Their patrol stops near the Abrams tanks, ready to engage the building. A Marine officer tells the building is infested with enemy fighters who have put up a serious fight. The officers are coordinating an airstrike on the building that will absolutely demolish it and anyone inside. However, to Jocko, something seems completely off. He knew that their sniper team was close by, and these troops weren't supposed to be there yet on the ground. The moment of uh, revelation that he had is, despite it seeming like a complete suicide mission, Jocko got out of the tank, or the, the vehicle, and decided to check out the building himself. Again, to the Marines and the ones on the ground, they believe that this is filled with enemy insurgents. To his surprise, inside the building, he finds his Navy SEAL platoon chief looking at him dead shocked. It turns out, due to a mix-up, a group of Iraqi soldiers had entered the building, thinking it was an enemy compound. A firefight ensued, with both sides thinking that they were fighting enemy fighters, and the situation ultimately ended up being a blue-on-blue -blue incident, which means friendly fire. When Jocko returned to base, the news of what happened spread fast. His superiors were informed, and they were sent in order to stop all operations. They were coming to investigate, and someone would likely be blamed and fired for the incident. He was afraid it might be him because the friendly fire happened under his watch. Jocko started to collect information of what went wrong. They had many communication failures. Plans were changed without notifying everyone. The radio communication was unclear. The location of friendly forces wasn't properly shared to everyone and much more. Jocko put all of these mistakes into a report for his superiors, but he couldn't shake off the feeling that something was missing, something really important. There were so many different mistakes but at the core of it, who was truly to blame for this? And then it finally dawned on him. He was the one responsible. I was the one responsible. As the commander, I was in charge of the entire operation. Every mistake that happened was ultimately my responsibility, no matter who made them. When Jocko's superiors arrived, they gathered everyone in a room for a debrief. The room was silent. He asked, who was to blame for this mission? And many of his own men admitted that they were the ones to blame and they should be relieved of their duties. But Jocko told them that they were all wrong. It wasn't their fault. It was his. He declared himself responsible for that, everything that went wrong. 
It was a hard pill to swallow, but as a leader, it was his duty to take ownership of the failures. After all, we discussed how we could prevent such incidents in the future. This experience taught him a crucial lesson about leadership and responsibility, which he later passed on to new SEAL trainees. In leadership, the person in charge is ultimately responsible for everything that happens under their command. It's a heavy burden, but that's what it means to take extreme ownership. In leadership, you're responsible for the good, the bad, and everything in between. Here are the key takeaways from chapter one. First, taking responsibility. Jocko took complete responsibility for the friendly fire incident despite not being directly involved. Similar in business, leaders should take full ownership of their team's results even if, when and if things go wrong. They are ultimately the ones responsible for the collective outcome regardless of individual mistakes. And if this is the one thing that you remember from this book, I think it's a key lesson learned. Key takeaway number two, the no blame game. Jocko didn't uh, you know, point at other people or his team members who made the mistakes. In life and in business, it's important to create an environment where people feel safe to make mistakes and ultimately learn from them, instead of fearing blame and punishment. Third, Jocko used this incident as a way to learn from his opportunity. Learn and adapt. Identify where things went wrong and make changes to help prevent these in the future. In business, leaders must learn from their failures and continuously seek ways to improve, innovate, and adapt. Fourth, communication. This incident highlighted the importance of clear and effective communication. In business, leaders should ensure everyone is aligned on the mission, where to be, and overly communicate with each individual. And the last key takeaway, trust and respect. By owning the mistake, Jocko earned the respect of his teammates and superiors. In life and in business, taking responsibility fosters trust and respect. Chapter 2. No Bad Teams, Only Bad Leaders The moon cast over an eerie glow over the desolate beach as exhausted students of Navy SEAL training endured the endless and relentless torments of Hell Week. Drenched in the frigid ocean water, their camouflage fatigues clung to their weary bodies, raw and bleeding from their abrasive sand. The biting wind pierced through them, adding to their ultimate misery. These young men, who had embarked on a grueling journey to become U.S. Navy SEALs, had already endured 72 hours of relentless physical exhaustion and exertion. Sleep had become a distant memory for them, with only a meager hour of rest in the past three days. The initial class had almost 200 people, and it was dwindled down to a couple thousand. Yet within the first 48 hours of Hell Week, the majority of them had surrendered to the brutal challenges, ringing the bell three times as a symbol of defeat and relinquishing their dreams of becoming a Navy SEAL. Hell Week is not just a mere test of physical fitness. It was a crucible for the mind. The students who survived the preceding weeks of BUDS training had already demonstrated sufficient physical prowess to graduate. The true test lay in their mental fortitude. It was not uncommon for the most exceptional athletes to fall short during Hell Week. Success was not solely determined by determination and willpower, but also by innovation and effective communication within the team. The training aimed to produce men who were not only physically tough, but also produced the ability to outsmart their adversaries. Years before, Jocko had endured his own Hell Week on that very same beach. Back then, he was one of 101 students who embarked on the journey. But at the end, only 40 of them emerged victorious. Some of the most gifted athletes and boastful uh, muscle heads, as he said, had been the first to quit. Those of us who endured had discovered a reservoir of mental and physical strength that surpassed our wildest expectations. The pain, misery, and exhaustion became catalysts for their growth, shaping them into formidable warriors. Now, as a Navy SEAL instructor, Jocko had returned to the Naval Special Warfare Training Center after two combat deployments in Iraq. His primary role involved instructing the Junior Officer Training Course, which focused on officer leadership development. However, he also played a part in Hell Week, overseeing the crew of instructors responsible for pushing these students to their limits. It was an entirely new experience to observe Hell Week from the perspective of an officer. The students were divided into seven-man boat crews based on their height, each crew assigned an inflatable boat. These boats, uh, relics from the days of the Navy frogmen during World War II, were burdensome and unwieldy. Carrying them was a relentless ordeal with the boat crews lugging the heavy rubber vessels on their heads. 
whether scaling sand berms, sprinting along the beach, or maneuvering through Bud's obstacle course, these boats were a source of unrelenting misery. Each boat had a distinctive number that identified them, except for the crew with the shortest men, humorously dubbed the Smurf Crew, whose boat bore the image of a bright blue Smurf. In every boat crew, a senior ranking member assumed the role of a boat crew leader. They were responsible for receiving instructions from the instructors and guiding the crew's actions. The boat crew leader performance was closely scrutinized by instructors who emphasized the importance of winning. Each race and during Hell Week was a competition, a chance for a victorious crew to earn a few precious minutes of rest while other crews soldiered on. The instructors drove home the point, it pays to be a winner. Second place was dismissed as the first losers. With this class, one boat crew in particular, Boat Crew 2, stood out from the rest. They constantly dominated the races, displaying exceptional teamwork, motivation, and individual performance. Boat Crew 2 had a strong and capable leader, and each team member of the crew seemed highly motivated and skilled. They compensated one another's weaknesses, fostered a sense of camaraderie, and celebrated their victories with brief moments of rest. Morale ran high among Boat Crew 2 as they outperformed their peers. On the opposite side of the spectrum, there is Boat Crew 6, delivering markably different performance. They consistently placed last in every single race, plagued by internal discourse and frustration with each other. Their communication delved into angry outbursts, and each team member focusing solely on their own discomfort. Their Boat Crew leader, a young and inexperienced officer, was equally disheartened and seemingly had this idea that their crew can no longer improve or can never improve from the situation they're in. Their poor performance drew the attention and additional punishment from the instructors, amplifying their misery. The senior chief instructor and experienced senior non-commissioned officer took notice of Boat Crew's six struggles and inadequacy of their leader. He believed that leadership was the key to the crew's performance, and then an idea began to form. The senior chief proposed swapping the Boat Crew's leaders of the best and worst crews to observe the impact on their performance. The plan was swiftly approved, and the boat crew leaders were informed of their new assignments. Boat crew 2's leader, though clearly reluctant to relieve his uh, successful team, accepted the challenge with determination. Boat crew 6's leader, on the other hand, had a sigh of relief and a sense of entitlement, believing that fate had suddenly smiled upon him. Little did they know that their actions and attitudes were about to change the course of their prospective crews. Then the next race began. The boat crew sprinted over the sand burns, hoisting their heavy boats into their shoulders, and they hurried down into the water, jumped in, and paddled with relentless favor. Boat crew six, now under a new leadership, emerged as frontrunners, defying all expectations. Remember, this boat crew was struggling in all past competitions. They held onto their lead, crossing the finish line ahead of Boat Crew 2, who was challenging them for first place. Boat Crew 6 had miraculously transformed from the worst performing crew to the best. The individual attention and punishment from the instructor seized, replaced by renewed confidence and determination in the team. The Boat Crew leader, once deemed helpless, has guided his crew to a new victory. The astonishing turnaround continued in subsequent races, with Boat Crew 6 constantly outperforming the rest of the class. Boat Crew 2 maintained their impressive performance, although narrowly missing first place. These two crews surpassed all expectations, leaving the others behind. And it was a powerful demonstration of one of the most fundamental principles in leadership. There are no bad teams, only bad leaders. The simple act of switching a single individual, the leader, had revolutionized the performance of an entire group. Leadership emerged as the most crucial factor in a team's success or failure. The attitude and actions of a leader can set the tone for the entire team and drive their performance. As he witnessed with his own eyes, Jocko marveled at the impact of effective leadership. The story of Boat Crew 6 served as a testament to the power of guidance and direction, reinforcing the concept of extreme ownership. It was a lesson that would stay with him and hope resonate with his class for the rest of his journey. Here are the key takeaways from Chapter 2. First. The performance of a team is a reflection of its leadership. 2. Leaders must set clear standards and expectations for their teams. 3. Accepting substandard performance establishes a new norm of mediocrity within a team. 4. 
Effective leadership align all team members towards an organizational mission and purpose. Fifth, support and guidance from leaders empowers team members to take ownership of their own responsibilities. And last, cultivating a culture of extreme ownership encourages individuals to take initiative and drive their own performance. Chapter 3. Believe. Chaco laid here puzzled and confused by the message that he had just received. For years, he had led a cohesive and battle-hardened team, a tight-knit unit that moved with synchronized precision of a well-oiled machine. They had trained together, fought together, and developed an unspoken understanding that transcended words. Even in the darkness, they could anticipate each other's moves through their silhouettes, familiarity, and reassurance. But now an order came from above that cast a shadow of doubt over their capabilities. They were instructed by their leadership to integrate Iraqi soldiers into their mission, an unexpected challenge that threatened to disrupt the cohesion of their team. Jocko viewed this as the direction of that was completely unfair and unjust. His mind raced with concerns about the capability of the two groups of troops. From Jocko's perspective, the Iraqi soldiers were considered among the world's least effective combat troops. Motivated primarily by economic circumstances, many had joined their army simply for a paycheck. They lacked proper training, war equipment, and even basic uniforms. Sneakers had replaced proper boots on their feet, and above all, their motivation and training were sorely lacking. The message of including Iraqi soldiers met resistance to the ranks. The troops believed it would only make their missions more challenging and difficult, doubting the competence and reliability of their Iraqi counterparts. Amidst this turmoil and kind of thoughts, doubts, and frustrations, amidst the turmoil of thoughts, doubts, and confusion, Jocko sought to understand the bigger picture. Gradually, a revelation dawned upon him. This mission was not solely about military victory. It was about creating a stable and peaceful country. If the Iraqi soldiers couldn't be trained to protect their own nation, it would necessitate the deployment of the American soldiers to secure their land for generations to come. The order to include Iraqis in the operation held a deeper purpose, to foster their independence and teach them how to defend themselves. Jocko's task was now clear. He needed to help his team embrace and understand the core mission behind this decision. Jocko's task was now clear. He needed to help his team embrace and understand this revelation. Getting a meeting with his team, he set out to convince them on the greater significance behind this direction. Slowly, his words began to resonate with his troops. He implored them to recognize that if they didn't teach the Iraqi soldiers to protect themselves, they would forever remain stationed in the treacherous lands of Ramadi, guarding the Iraqi citizens for generations to come. Though resistance still lingered, seeds of strategic perspective took root among the team. Jocko addressed them emphasizing the importance of their role in the training of Iraqi soldiers and reducing violence. He acknowledged that the Iraqi soldiers would never meet the same standards they set for themselves, but they could make them better. He urged his team to understand that their mission would only be approved if Iraqi soldiers were also involved. Jocko also engaged with his key leaders, emphasizing the significance of the mission and the inclusion of Iraqi soldiers in every single operation. The officers and chiefs were instructed to not submit any concept of operations without the Iraqi soldiers as part of their force. Though many questioned the impact of a unilateral operation from previous deployments, Jocko explained that the different approach was needed to turn the tide of a downward spiral in Iraq. With conviction, he declared that every operation would feature Iraqi soldiers. They would become the catalyst for change and the key for operating differently. Jocko assured his team that they would prepare the Iraqi soldiers the best they could fighting side-by-side side with them until the enemy was crushed. He sought to instill unwavering belief in their mission, addressing any lingering questions with absolute resolve. Here's the key takeaway from this chapter. True leadership begins with a deep belief in the mission at hand. Even when doubts arise and others question the risks involved, a leader must remain unwavering faith in his mission. This conviction becomes contagious and inspiring to others, align themselves with the purpose and the goals. Believing in the mission also fuels a leader's determination to do whatever it takes to achieve success, even if it means risking everything. Leaders who believe in the mission must demonstrate this belief through their action and their words. Their commitment should be evident in every decision they make 
in every interaction they have. By consistently embodying the mission's values, leaders cultivate a culture of belief throughout all of the ranks. Subordinates and juniors will likely also embrace and invest in the mission when they see that their leaders are leading by example. In conclusion, true leaders must believe wholeheartedly in the mission. They understand that they are part of something greater and operate with conviction that their actions are contributing to the organization's purpose. Chapter 4. Check the Ego In the dangerous city of Ramadi, Iraq, Task Unit Bruiser, Jocko Seal Group, arrived to combat the relentless enemy insurgency. They quickly proved their mettle by unleashing a lethal firepower and collaborating with the U.S. Army and Marine units. Ramadi's hostile environment demanded unity and cooperation among all groups, setting aside ego for the greater mission. Amidst the intense battles, a highly capable Iraqi unit and their American advisors sought to join the fight in Ramadi. Equipped with advanced gear and skills exceeding other Iraqi army groups, they stationed themselves at the camp corridor among the renowned 1 and 506 parachute infantry regiment of the United States Army. A deep bond formed between the SEALs and the 1506 soldiers as both teams displayed professionalism and respect for each other. However, not all units shared the same level of humility. Some members of the newly arrived Iraqi unit flaunted undisciplined appearances and disregarded advice from SEALs and the 1506 personnel. Their overconfidence and refusal to coordinate operational details with the teams raised concerns, undermining the unity needed to combat the enemy insurgency. Recognizing the importance of the missions, the SEALs and the 1506 continued their operations with relentless determination. The SEALs integrated seamlessly with their counterparts, sharing lessons learned and leveraging their expertise to save lives. Meanwhile, between the new unit and the 1506 escalated, leading to the unit's eventual departure from the camp court. Meanwhile, distance between the new unit and the 1506 continued to escalate, leading to the unit's eventual departure from the camp. Despite the challenges, Task Unit Bruiser and the 1506 soldiers remained focused on their key objective to defeat the insurgency and secure Ramadi. Here's the key principle for this chapter. While having drive to succeed is beneficial, ego becomes destructive when it clouds judgment, hinders their own self-reflection, and prioritizes personal agendas over a team's success. Implementing extreme ownership requires humility, admitting mistakes, and developing plans to overcome challenges. In the SEAL teams, confidence is valued, but arrogance is avoided. They understand the importance of remaining vigilant and not underestimating the capabilities of their enemies. Controlling ego is crucial in maintaining effectiveness within the battlefield and in business. Chapter 5. Cover and Move In the midst of the war-torn city of Ramadi, the SEALs embarked on a sniper overwatch operation to protect troops on the streets. As dawn broke, the first call to prayer echoed signaling the start of the day. The SEALs and their fellow soldiers set out a clear enemy-held neighborhoods and established safer conditions. During the operation, the SEAL sniper overwatch teams engaged and eliminated enemy fighters, effectively disrupting their attacks. The collaboration between the SEALs and the Team Bulldog proved successful, and they cleared every building in the sector without any casualties. The efficiency and the effectiveness of the team sniper overwatch teams were vital to the team's operation success. However, after completing their objectives, the SEALs faced a difficult decision. They had to choose between remaining in their vulnerable overwatch position until nightfall, calling in armored vehicles for extraction, or conducting a risky foot patrol back to the combat outpost. The least bad option was to move out on foot immediately, even though it would expose them to potential gunfire and ambushes. As they made their way back, the SEALs encountered a fierce attack from enemy fighters. Employing their training and tactics, they effectively returned fire, maneuvered through the streets, and repulsed the assault. They reached the safety of the combat outpost unarmed, filled with adrenaline and a sense of accomplishment. However, the platoon chief confronted the SEAL commander about the critical mistake. The SEALs had failed to coordinate with the other sniper overwatch team and failed to work together as a unified team. The chief emphasized the importance of cover and move, highlighting the need for mutual support and collaboration among all elements in the mission. This realization led to the profound understanding of the significance of teamwork and support. Here's the key principle for chapter five. 
The key principle of cover and move emphasizes the importance of teamwork and mutual support within a team. It highlights the need for all elements in the team to work together, depend on each other, and understand their interdependence. When teams within the larger team operate independently or work against each other, it can have catastrophic consequences for the overall team's performance. Leaders must maintain the perspective on the strategic mission and remind the team that they are all part of a greater whole. Every team member is critical to the team's success, and the main effort and supporting efforts must be clearly identified. Instead of blaming each other or creating animosity, individuals and teams should find a way to work together, communicate effectively, and support one another. Chapter 6. Simple. In this chapter, Jocko explains the execution of a presence patrol in Ramadi. Initially, there was a discussion about the complexity of a planned patrol, and Jocko advised the team lead to simplify the route to mitigate risks. The patrol lead, consisting of Iraqi soldiers, accompanied by SEALs, didn't really take the advice and set off into enemy territory. Soon after the patrol started, they came under heavy enemy fire, engaging in substantial firefight. Jocko monitored the situation and provided direct radio communications with the patrol. Tanks and vehicles were dispatched to support the patrol, and the SEAL snipers and machine gunners provided cover from their overwatch positions. Despite the enemy attack, the patrol successfully regrouped and returned to the outpost base with a few casualties. Jocko acknowledges the effectiveness of simplicity and commends the SEAL leader for keeping his composure under a heavy firefight. The key principle for this chapter emphasizes the importance of simplicity in combat and other areas of life. It states that simplifying plans, orders, and communication is critical for success. Complexities can lead to misunderstandings and complicate issues when things go wrong. Leaders must ensure that everyone understands their roles and what to do in different situations. They should communicate in simple, clear, and concise manner, ensuring that the entire team understands. Keeping plans and communication simple is vital for the success of any team and organization, whether in combat, business, or life. Chapter 7. Prioritize and Execute In the heart of the war-torn Ramadi, amidst the chaos and danger, a group of elite SEAL operators found themselves in a precarious situation. Surrounded by enemy fighters and with an intimate threat of lurking nearby, their only means of escape was through a stairway that had become suspicious. Realizing the urgency of the situation, their leader called for a huddle with the chief, their leading petty officer, and the platoon officers. They needed to find another way out, but the options seemed limited. With a drop of nearly 20 feet from three sides of a second-story building and the knowledge of potential explosive devices on the street, the team had to tread carefully. Amidst the brainstorming, an unconventional idea emerged. Tying bedsheets together and using them to descend the third-story windows on the rooftops of a neighboring building. It may have seemed like a wild plan, but given the circumstances, it was an option they had to seriously consider. Their attention then turned to the fourth and remaining wall, a solid concrete barrier with no openings. However, the SEALs had their trusty tool, a sledgehammer, always ready for situations like this. The leading petty officer called for the sledge, it began tirelessly hammering away at the wall. Joined by a few others who rotated every few minutes, the laborious process was slow and physically demanding. But they persevered, driven by the desire to create a hole large enough for their entire team and equipment to pass through into the adjacent rooftop. As the SEALs worked diligently, the Explosive Ordnance Disposal EOD operators focused on a more immediate threat, an IED planted at their doorstep. Their meticulous investigation uncovered two rocket projectiles rigged with Simtex, a deadly plastic explosive. Realizing the potential devastation it would cause, they took matters into their own hands setting up their own explosive charge to neutralize the IED and protect the platoon from harm. After 20 grueling minutes, the SEALs finally breached the concrete wall, exhausted and drenched in sweat. They now had an alternate exit, allowing them to circumvent the IED threat that loomed. Making sure nothing was left behind, they lined up near the jagged hole in the wall, ready to escape the building. With the inner squad radio crackling with anticipation, the command to pop smoke was given. Smoke filled the air as the countdown to detonation began. Time was running out, and they needed to move quickly to a safe distance before the explosive engulfed the area. Swiftly, they pushed through the hole onto the dusty rooftop of the adjacent building, assuming tactical positions, their weapons scanning the surroundings for any sites of danger. In the midst of chaos, the leader urgently called for a headcount. 
Their leading petty officer, calm and composed, took charge of the task, ensuring that every single person had safely exited the building. But just as a glimmer of hope emerged, tragedy struck. A seal moving along the edge of the rooftop unexpectedly crashed through the tarp-covered section, plummeting 20 feet to an unforgiving ground below. Shock and concern, rightfully so, filled the air as the fallen seal lay on the concrete, groaning in pain. Desperate to reach him, they quickly realized that the only stairway leading down from the rooftop was blocked by a heavily ironed gate, chain-locked and seemingly impenetrable. The situation was dire. Exposed on a rooftop with no cover, surrounded by enemy-held territory, and the clock ticking of an impeding IED blast. In the face of overwhelming challenges, their leader embodied the principle of prioritize and execute. Recognizing the need for immediate security, he directed the team to set up a defensive perimeter on the rooftop, ensuring their safety and readiness to engage any threats. Meanwhile, the SEALs up front, without the need for explicit orders, focused on finding a way to breach the locked iron gate, their training and instincts hopefully guiding them. Once again, their leading petty officer stepped up, calmly conducting a headcount amidst the chaos. The relief was palpable when he confirmed that everyone had successfully evacuated the building, including the fallen SEAL. But the race against time was far from over. Within minutes, the SEAL breacher accomplished the seemingly impossible, breaking into the lock gate. Now, with a pathway to their wounded comrade, they wasted no time. The chief took charge, directing the movement of the shooters and ensuring coverage as the team descended to the streets below. SEALs rushed down, established security, while others quickly reached the injured comrade. With their entire element finally off the exposed rooftop, they moved swiftly to a safe distance, away from the impeding IED blast. Moments later, an earth-shattering explosion rocked the night, illuminating the darkness with a massive fireball and scattering deadly fragments in all directions. Miraculously, no lives were lost, and the injured SEAL, though shaken and wounded, would recover. Returning to base, the injured SEAL received medical care, his wounds stitched up by skilled doctors, and undeterred by the dangers that they had faced, the team remained resolute, ready to face the next operation together, bound by their unwavering camaraderie and invaluable lessons learned or prioritizing and executed. The key principle for this chapter, the principle of prioritize and execute emphasizes the importance of remaining calm and making effective decisions, especially in high pressure situations. It involves identifying the highest priority task or problem first, focusing on its execution, and then moving on to the next priority. This approach helps prevent becoming overwhelmed by multiple challenges and ensures that the team's efforts are directed towards the most critical objectives. Effective communication, contingency planning, and the ability to adapt to shifting priorities are also vital components of implementing this principle successfully. Chapter 8. Decentralized Command In the heat of battle, decisions must be made swiftly and accurately to ensure the safety and success of a team. One such crucial decision occurred during the mission in a hostile combat zone. The SEALs of Charlie and Delta Platoons were tasked with securing key positions in a volatile neighborhood. Delta Platoon encountered an unexpected obstacle when their planned building proved unsuitable for their needs. Resourceful and adaptable, the platoon commander and his senior leaders quickly scouted an alternative connection, Building 94. They relayed their plan to Jocko and the team, and without hesitation, he gave them the green light for their move. As Delta Platoon made their way to Building 94, Jocko ensured that the information was shared with other friendly forces in the area. Building 94, a four-story structure, provided an advantageous vantage point, and from there, the SEALs had a clear view of the major road and the upcoming construction site for COP Grant, a new combat outpost. With Delta Platoon securely positioned in Building 94, the radio man confirmed its occupation and relayed the information to other units. Meanwhile, Tension gripped in the air as American troops flooded into the area. Vulnerable without permanent security measures in place, reports of possible enemy movement heightened in the anticipation of an immediate battle. Suddenly, a report crackled over the radio from the Bradley fighting vehicle equipped with thermal sights. A group of armed enemy snipers had been spotted on a rooftop. Memories of previous casualties caused everyone's defenses to spike, and the desire to eliminate the enemy snipers grew intense. Eager to engage, the company commander in charge of the Bradley received confirmation of the enemy sniper's location. However, Jocko wanted to ensure absolute certainty before initiating any actions. He then reached out to the Delta Platoon's commander to confirm their precise position. Delta Platoon's commander confirmed without a shadow of a doubt that they are in Building 94. Relieved by this clarification, Jocko then relayed the information to the company commander, preventing a potential catastrophic mistake like a friendly fire. 
Despite the urgency to neutralize the enemy snipers, Jaka requested one final confirmation from the Bradley vehicle commander. Counting the buildings from the intersection, they reached a different conclusion. The enemy snipers were actually in building 94, where their seals were located. An immediate order to hold fire was issued to all units, avoiding a tragic case of friendly fire. The close call served as a stark reminder of the complexities and challenges of an urban warfare, where confusion can easily cloud judgment. The incident highlighted the importance of decentralized command, where subordinate leaders take initiatives and propose solutions. With his platoon commanders exhibiting extreme ownership, Jocko was able to focus on the bigger picture, monitoring the actions of coordinating units and preventing potential disasters. As tensions escalated, enemy fighters launched violent attacks to defend their territory. However, the SEAL snipers and machine gunners swiftly dispatched them, distinguishing their enthusiasm and securing the streets they aimed to control. The success of decentralized command allowed them to support the construction of a new combat outpost and contribute to the strategic mission of stabilizing Ramadi and safeguarding the populace. The key principle demonstrated in the story in this chapter is the importance of effective decision-making and decentralized command in the heat of battle. It emphasizes the need for leaders to make swift and accurate decisions, prioritize information, and confirm critical details before taking any action. By empowering subordinate leaders and trusting their expertise, leaders can focus on the bigger picture and prevent potential disasters. This principle encourages cohesive teamwork, adaptability, and the successful achievement of objectives in challenging and dynamic environments. Chapter 9. Plan The tension was palpable as Task Unit Bruiser prepared for a high-stakes hostage rescue mission. A young Iraqi teenager had been kidnapped by a ruthless terrorist group, and his life hung in the balance. This was no ordinary operation. It required precision, bravery, and flawless planning. Butters, the young intelligence officer, brought grave news to the team. The terrorist group had buried improvised explosive devices, IEDs, in the yard and fortified the house with bunkered machine positions. The risks were high, and the situation called for the utmost caution. However, the SEALs of Tasking a Bruiser were not the ones to back down from a challenge. With little time to spare, the team quickly analyzed the intelligence gathered by Butters and finalized their plan. As Charlie Platoon Commander, Jocko would lead the assault force, accompanied by SEALs, EID bomb technicians, and Iraqi soldiers. Jocko, as tasking at Bruiser's commander, would oversee the command and control of all assets involved. Before they started on their mission, they sought advice from the experienced U.S. Army Company commander familiar with the area. He provided valuable insights and recommendations to enhance their approach. With their plan then solidified, they gathered all the SEAL operators for a detailed briefing. The key support personnel were also included to ensure clear communication and coordination in case of unforeseen circumstances. During the briefing, they emphasized three crucial points to the assault force, maintaining elements of surprise, swift and efficient clearance of the target building, and positive identification of the threats while safeguarding the hostage. Jocko followed up with a clear directive for anyone who had use of their weapons, ensure that they were targeting the bad guys. As the briefing concluded, the SEALs loaded up their gear and prepared to depart. Butters rushed in with updated intelligence, a sobering reminder of the dangers we faced. However, we maintained our confidence in the soundness of their plan and proceeded with their determination. Their catchphrase, good times, symbolized their readiness to confront any challenge. They moved out under the cover of darkness, silently approaching the target location. Their sniper overwatch team provided updates, reporting no visible movement. The assault force crept closer, their adrenaline pumping, and sentence heightened. With the EOD leading the way to detect any IED threats, their SEAL breach team positioned an explosive charge on the door. Boom! The operation was underway. They entered the smoke-filled room with speed and precision. The Iraqi soldiers, initially hesitant, were propelled forward by our SEAL combat advisors, and together they swiftly cleared each room. Remarkably, no shots were fired. They secured the target and proceeded to identify the captives. Among the detainees was the Iraqi teenager that they came to rescue. With a touch of humor, one of their SEALs reassured him that their presence was top secret and he need not to thank them. The relief on his face was evident, grateful to be freed from the clutches of his captors. The team's plan had worked flawlessly. The bad guys had been caught off guard, unaware of their presence until it was too late. Success of the operation showcased their meticulous planning, efficient execution, and collaboration between Task Unit Bruiser and our Iraqi partners. 
The positive impact on the local community, freeing an Iraqi hostage from the grips of insurgency, was profound. Reflecting on this experience, they used it as a leadership exercise for new generation SEAL platoon commanders and chiefs. They would present them with the same scenario and ask them what they would do upon learning that the IEDs and machine gun positions. Some suggested abandoning the missions, while others proposed pre-planning. However, they challenged their thinking by asking if any mission could be guaranteed free of such hazards. The answer was clear. None could. They emphasized the effective planning involved preparing for likely contingencies and mitigating risks. The success of Tasking and Bruiser's mission was a testament to this approach. In the end, the mission had been a triumph. The hostage was rescued unharmed, and the SEALs returned safely. The story of Task Unit Bruiser served as a powerful example for any team, illustrating the importance of standardized planning and processes and the ability to adapt to unexpected changes. The key principle of this text is the importance of effective planning in achieving mission success. It emphasizes the need for clear directives, refined mission statements, and thorough analysis of available information, delegation of planning responsibilities, prioritization of information during briefings, risk mitigation, and continuous evaluation and adaptation through debriefs. Chapter 10, Leading Up and Down the Chain of Command. Picture a night sky, calm and clear, just moments before chaos erupts. U.S. security positions find themselves under attack, and a fierce firefight ensues. Tracer bullets light up the darkness, streaking through the air as American sentries return fire. Explosions and gunfire howl in the distance as the unseen enemy faces the might of the U.S. forces. On the rooftop of the three-story concrete building, two figures, Jocko and the platoon commander, sit in reflection. This is their tactical operation center, their home in Camp Mark Lee. For almost six months, their SEAL task unit has been stationed in Ramadi, amidst the constant turmoil of war. With a brief lull in combat operations, they take a rare moment to gaze across the peaceful waters of the Euphrates River, contemplating all that has transpired. They reminisce about the countless operations, firefights, and losses they have endured. They have witnessed the triumph of success, knowing that they've made a difference, but they have also felt the weight of extraordinary loss. The memory of fallen seals, Mark Lee, Ryan Job, and Mike Munzir weighs heavy on their hearts. These were beloved teammates, friends, and brothers who made the ultimate sacrifice. As they reflect on their time in Ramadi, they realized the crucial role their sealed task unit played in the larger strategy in the U.S. Army Ready First Brigade. Through relentless operation and battles, they helped wrest the control of key neighborhoods from insurgents. They enabled the local population to stand against Al-Qaeda in Iraq, leading to an Anbar awakening. They take pride in knowing that their actions had secured Ramadi and disrupted the enemy's freedom of movement. Returning home to San Diego, California, the transition from the intense violence of peace into war and tranquility is emotionally challenging. The platoon commander feels the burden of not being able to bring all of his comrades home safely. The sacrifices made by the troops, their families, and friends are beyond what most people can comprehend. It infuriates them to hear the pundits and critics who view casualties as mere statistics, ignoring the true impact and sacrifices that were made on the battlefield. In an effort to convey the strategic significance of their operations, Jocko creates a presentation for the Chief of the Naval Operations. He constructs a map overlay depicting the enemy-controlled areas in Ramadi when they first arrived and showcases how their operations systematically pushed back insurgents. They realized that they, as leaders, had not fully connected the dots between the tactical missions and the overarching goal. This revelation drives them to better communicate the strategic impact to their frontline troops. Looking back on their deployment, they realized the importance of ownership and understanding within their platoon. Those operators who had a stake in planning process had a better comprehension of the mission's purpose and its contribution to the larger strategy. The platoon commander acknowledges that he should have given greater ownership to all troops, even those who were initially negative or doubtful. They understand the significance of leading down the chain of command, providing context, and helping operators see the broader picture. In the end, they learned a valuable lesson. They have witnessed the incredible victory achieved in Ramadi and the impact of their actions. They've endured losses that will forever be mourned, but also have made differences in securing the city and protecting its people. Their story serves as a reminder of the sacrifices made by troops in combat and the importance of effective leadership in conveying the strategic mission to every member of the team. Here's the key principle for this chapter. 
Good leaders understand the bigger picture and the strategic goals they're working towards. However, it's important to recognize that the frontline troops and junior leaders may not automatically grasp the same understanding. Leaders must regularly communicate with their team members to help them understand their role in the overall mission and how their individual tasks contribute to the larger objectives. This requires personal engagement, face-to-face -face conversations, and observation of the frontline troops to gain insight into their challenges and align their actions with the commander's intent. Leading down the chain of command involves taking responsibility for effectively communicating the strategic picture to the team rather than blaming them for not seeing it. Chapter 11, Decisiveness Amid Uncertainty. In the heart of Ramadi, where the dangers of enemy snipers lurked, a team of SEALs led by Chris Kyle, known as the Legend, meticulously planned their sniper operations. Chris, renowned for his exceptional markmanship and extreme ownership of his craft, positioned himself strategically to maximize his effectiveness. On this particular day, Chris spotted a figure with a scoped weapon in the second story window. It was a tense situation as they needed to positively identify the target and determine if it posed a threat. They contacted the U.S. Army in charge of the area to confirm if there was any friendly personnel were in that building. After receiving confirmation that was clear, they were given the green light to engage. Doubts crept in. The area was densely populated with U.S. soldiers, and the risk of a tragic mistake weighed heavily on their minds. They couldn't afford to take a shot without absolute certainty. Despite the pressure from the company commander, they decided to exercise caution and request the building to be re-cleared. Amid the tense radio exchanges and mounting frustration, they maintained their stance. They couldn't risk harming their fellow soldiers. Finally, it became clear that they had, it became clear that they had made a critical error in identifying the building. The figure Chris had seen was not an enemy sniper, but a U.S. soldier with a scoped weapon. Relief washed over them as they realized they had narrowly avoided a devastating mistake. Their initial judgment and decision not to take this shot without positive identification had saved a fellow service member's life. The weight of responsibility, both as a leader and a human beings, was immense. They were grateful for their resolve and ability to make the right decision, even in the face of pressure. The incident served as a stark reminder of the uncertainties and dangers of combat. Amid the chaos, leaders must remain composed, think logically, and act decisively. The story highlights the importance of leadership under pressure and the significance of making informed choices to ensure the safety and success of any mission. The principle highlighted here is that combat leaders, as well as leaders in other domains, must operate in an environment of uncertainty and chaos. They rarely have complete information or a clear understanding of the enemy's actions and reactions. Despite this, leaders cannot be paralyzed by fear and wait for a perfect solution. They must make a prompt and informed decision based on the immediate information available and adjust those decisions when needed and be comfortable when operating with an incomplete picture. Chapter 12, Discipline Equals Freedom, The Dichotomy of Leadership. As the alarm clock blared, piercing through the darkness of the SEAL's barracks, the intense day ahead began. The platoon commander, a young SEAL in his first deployment of Iraq, knew that discipline was the key to success. With the bulk of their operations involving capturing or killing missions at night, they had little room for error. On this particular day, the platoon received intelligence about the location of a high-value target. They meticulously planned their assault, ensuring that they were prepared for any potential threats. The moment of truth arrived as they blew open the front door with an explosive charge, unleashing chaos upon the target building. Amid the commotion and adrenaline, the SEAL assaulters swiftly moved through each room, eliminating threats and asserting control. The building was secured, but their mission was far from over. Now they had to identify and gather intelligence on the individuals that they had either killed or captured. It became quickly apparent that their method of searching for evidence and collecting intelligence was inefficient and ineffective. In their initial operations, they resorted to ransacking the place, causing a mess that required them to double-check everything. Critical evidence was missed, and their undisciplined approach put them in risk of counterattacks. Realizing the need for more efficient and disciplined search procedures, the platoon commander tasked his assistant platoon commander with developing a better method. The assistant took the assignment seriously creating a systematic plan that assigned specific roles to each team member and established a clear process for searching, documenting, and preserving evidence. Initially met with resistance from the SEAL platoon, the commander had to explain the importance of discipline and the need for improvement. He highlighted the flaws in their previous search methods and emphasized the increasing standards that they needed. Reluctantly, 
Splatoon agreed to give the new plan a try. The disciplined search procedure significantly improved their effectiveness and efficiency. Not only did they complete their searches in less time, but the quality of evidence collection was also vastly improved. With their new profound discipline, they could hit multiple targets in a single night, keeping evidence separate and organized. The platoon's freedom to operate and maneuver increased, reducing the risk of enemy counterattacks. The commander saw the transformative power of discipline and recognized its importance in everyday work. As the platoon progressed, the commander realized that discipline was not just an individual trait, but a team attribute. They developed standardized operating procedures for various tasks, enhancing their ability to execute swiftly and effectively. This disciplined approach actually made them more adaptable and creative, enabling them to make on-the-spot changes while still working with established frameworks. However, the commander acknowledged the delicate balance between discipline and freedom. Excessive discipline could hinder leaders and teams from making independent decisions and thinking freely. Thus, they strive to maintain the right equilibrium, where discipline provided a solid foundation for performance and adaptability. Through their journey, the SEAL platoon learned that discipline was not merely a set of rules and control, but a pathway to freedom. It allowed them to face the challenges of combat with confidence, relying on their established procedures, and enabling them to overcome adversity. Discipline was the key that unlocked their potential for success. Here's the key principle, the key principles from chapter 12. Leadership is a delicate balance of seemingly contradictory qualities. Recognizing and navigating these dichotomies is a crucial tool for effective leadership. Leaders must find the right equilibrium between opposing forces such as discipline and freedom, leading and following, and aggression and approachability. They should be open to following others when their expertise or ideas are better suited for the situation, setting aside ego and personal agendas. While leaders should show care and concern with their team, they should also maintain emotional control, avoiding volatile outbursts and emotionless attachment. Confidence is vital, but it should not cross into arrogance, as overconfidence leads to complacency and failure. Leaders must be brave and willing to accept calculated risks, ensuring that the team's safety and efficient resource utilization. Effective leaders exercise both extreme ownership and decentralized command, taking responsibility while empowering their team members. And lastly, leaders must prove their worthiness by earning the trust and confidence of their team through consistent action demonstrating their commitment to the team's long-term interests. Awareness of these leadership dichotomies enables the correction and the ability to lead with maximum effectiveness. And we've reached the end of this book. Thank you for listening, and I hope to release an episode next week. See you then.